Welcome to 20 for 20, the bite-sized educational podcast from Tom at Cannaboomers and Kurt Robbins, author of more than 500 articles about the science of hemp and cannabis. We're giving 20 cannabis topics 20 minutes each to help you get smarter about terpenes, cannabinoids, cultivars, and much, much more. And our show starts now. Hey, it's Tom at Cannaboomers. We're back with 2420 with Kurt Robbins, and we're at episode five already. We don't do a lot of idle chit-chat here because it's about education, and we kind of tend to dive right in, which is okay. And today, we're talking about genetics and labels, and maybe the classic thing we, that I hear is people talk about cannabis strains, and then purists say, well, a strain is like the flu. It's not really a strain. We call them cultivars. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's a couple different ways of, of looking at this. If you're a purist on the technical and science side, cultivar is the, the best label. A strain is like a bacterial infection or the flu, but that's from a very technical perspective. From a layperson perspective, if I use the word strain and you think Jack Hare, or Durban Poison, or Girl Scout cookies, then language serves its purpose. And, and we, we're both talking about the same thing. You know, if I say brown dog and you uh, imagine a giraffe, well, then we have a problem. So it's about defining terms. Um, we all know what we're talking about. Right. And we're not trying to turn anyone in the listening audience into a cultivation expert or give them a PhD in DNA and breeding sciences. But in the cannabis industry and culture, we hear terms like chemotype and cultivar and genome. And, you know, these are, these are terms from, from science. You know, many of us, uh, if you don't have a, a graduate degree in one of those specific disciplines, most of us are unfamiliar with these terms. So I just thought we would cover some of them. We're not going to go real deep on them. So when they get tossed around or people see these, maybe they're reading a research study, that's where I see these terms most often. And understanding their relative status to one another helps me you know, more quickly consume a research study. But even more uh, casual studies, like say on Leafly or, or something, they're going to use a lot of these terms. So they're certainly beneficial, uh, especially for industry professionals. Uh, a lot of people are jumping into hemp and cannabis and, uh, you know, it's deep science. We all need to uh, learn as much as we can about this to do our jobs properly. Well, sure. And as the legalization movement kind of sweeps through Canada and the United States, there, there is more and more to talk about. And we want to make sure we're all on the same page. Exactly. Let's start out talking about chemotypes. Another name, basically a synonym for chemotype is chemovar. So they're used interchangeably. Different researchers and in, you know, in different countries uh, label a lot of these things in different ways. So uh, it becomes a little challenging for people like us when we're trying to interpret the results. Because if they're talking about the same thing and we think it's two different things, then obviously you know, the instructional design model begins to crumble. A chemotype is a chemical phenotype. And we're going to talk about phenotypes in a second here. So I know this is confusing. And a phenotype is a subset of a cultivar. And we just talked about cultivars. Think of them as a substrain. It's like indica, sativa, and uh, ruderalis is a third cultivar, or is a third chemotype, rather, 
that people don't talk about very much. It comes from like Russia and near the Arctic Circle, the plants yield very little. Um, so, so there's not a lot of commercial value or interest from recreational consumers. But from a science perspective, ruderalis is just as legitimate. It's part of the cannabis sativa genome or species, and that's the best way of thinking of that term genome. That's another one of these terms we're defining here. It's basically like a species, and the cultivar, or, or rather the chemotype, is like a subspecies. And again, that's indica, sativa, and ruderalis. Would ruderalis be industrial hemp? Well, right, because they're all part of the same genome, it's, it's sharing some of those genes, right, that DNA. And this is where we need more research. Could, uh, it, you know, hemp is starting to get really big since the Farm Bill passed last year. And we need a lot more to happen on the genetics side of this. Because if you've got an acre of hemp and it produces, let's say you're trying to produce CBG or CBD, and you get 8%, out of that particular cultivar, that particular phenotype, going even deeper, okay, and more specific. Or what if you could get 12%? That's 50% more. You know, from a commercial viability perspective, that's a really big deal. So yeah, we need to be considering, nobody's talking about ruderalis right now. And I'm like, well, that's, that's kind of strange because there may be some commercial value there. So that, that's chemotypes and cultivars, basically. Right. Now, different chemotypes, they may feature very minor genetic variation, but significant chemical variation. And that's why it's chemotype. We're looking at the chemical composition of the plant. Uh, in terms of hemp and cannabis, this means a different cannabinoid profile. And we already know that that's the mix of those possible 113 cannabinoids and 200 terpenes. So when we're looking at numbers like that, it's not a couple dozen, it's several hundred, we can get some very unique mixes and thus why ruderalis and sativa and indica can be very different plants in the end. That makes sense. So we understand cultivar is a better way of uh, saying strain. I do wince a little when I see major media outlets say strain, but then again, they like to call cannabis consumers stoners. And uh, so, so they're not really uh, tuned into all of this yet, maybe in a few years. Yeah, there, there's a lot of education that has to be done. I mean, you know, we've probably talked in the past, just the term cannabis, marijuana is part of a racist past that we've talked about in other, with other guests just the word cannabis itself is probably the proper way to talk about this plant. So let's talk about phenotype a little, because again, the word keeps coming up and most people have either never heard it or certainly don't know what it is. Phenotype, you hear cannabis farmers and gardeners throw this term around, uh, especially if they grow outdoors. Technically speaking, it is the set of observable characteristics of an individual plant resulting from the interaction of that plant and its genotype with the environment. So if you and your specific genetics, if you grew up on the other side of the world in a very different environment, you know, different exercise patterns, different food, you may have manifested as an adult a little differently. And so that's what this is here. You know, the genetic blueprint is basically just a capability set. And the environmental conditions of those particular plants is really what determines how, how they're going to turn out. And this gets into microclimates, not that we're doing a deep dive here on cultivation, but you can take the exact same seeds, you know, from 
it's not only the same hemotype, the same cultivar, but from the same parents. And if you grow them, say, in southern Humboldt County, about 10 miles from the ocean, you're going to get a certain manifestation of that particular set of genetics. If you move and I've had these conversations with farmers in the Emerald Triangle. You go just 15 miles inland and you get a very different microclimate and that those same seeds will manifest differently. And this is just a great example of this stuff gets complicated. Sure. And how much of that is predictable or is it just kind of a test and learn scenario where you're, you're judging the results after you grow it? Yeah, we're in that experimental phase right now, and it's nice that some mobile testing technology is entering the market. Some of my clients are uh, buying into that and utilizing it to, you know, we need to get out of theory and see what is really happening, you know, get seeds in the ground and find out, okay, we've got an experiment with a, a, a ruderalis uh, influenced cultivar of hemp here, if we can get better yields on it, again, it could be the difference between a business that's not viable, we want to see this industry succeed, and a business that can maintain a fair profit, pay employees, pay taxes, and sustain itself. Just like growing grapes, you're going to have a different crop in Spain than you are in Sonoma, right? Exactly. And that gets exciting because on the branding and marketing side, because look what the wine industry has done, especially with California wine. And, you know, hopefully we'll start seeing some of that from small craft players in the industry. They're trying to do it in the Emerald Triangle in places like Humboldt County, where there would be kind of a, a, a seal of authenticity saying this particular cultivar came from this part of the world and obviously they would be touting the microclimate there and the uniqueness of those particular plants. Well, that's good to know. Now we know phenotypes. Yeah. You've got the genome and we've got uh, phenotypes where the environment influences the genetics. I think the big takeaway here is that we just, as lay people in the cannabis culture, we need to migrate away from strain and, and start saying cultivar. It's always a little risky because then people are less likely to understand what I'm saying or, or writing. But, uh, you know, we've got to make the transition at some point. Yeah, just so we're all, again, on the same page. And that's what this is all about is educating people and consumers about all their options. And, uh, yeah, we, we need to have a common vocabulary about this for sure. Yeah. So now that we understand what chemotype is, I discovered something doing research on a recent project, and it kind of blew my mind. So we've got indica, we've got sativa, and we've got ruderalis. Well, a study back in 1987 found what is theorized, and I'm not sure why people aren't talking about this, because it's, it's very interesting and could have some major commercial impact. But they found a chemotype. We know that THC is derived from CBG. CBG, cannabigerol, is the molecular life cycle called the biosynthetic pathway. It is the beginning of all of that. It is the genesis. Thus, we have a relationship in all of these cultivars and in the genome overall that the more THC we have, the less CBG, because there was a lot of CBG in that plant, but as it matured and got up to harvest time, it was converting the CBG. And I'm using very, very simple model here. There's acidic precursors and all that other stuff we talked about in previous episodes involved in that. So again, this is, this is a very simple model. Well, 
then it goes to reason if you have a chemotype that's very high in CBG, it's going to be very low in THC. And we've talked before about broad spectrum versus full spectrum products. And there is uh, a lot of need or desire in the market for products that do not give any overt psychoactivity sometimes called intoxication. I don't like that term because I don't think it's toxic. I think it's medicine. But uh, anyway, so they found this chemotype to have a very high amount of CBG. Mind-blowing. Now, before I give that number, normally in these common endocrine sativa chemotypes, there's roughly 1% to 3% CBG because it's converted most of it to THC. That's what the breeders and the cultivators are trying to get, right? They're racing toward THC. There have been uh, cultivars identified that had upwards of 10%, but they're extremely rare. So we, you just don't see it, but they've, they've been found and they've been cited, they've been identified in research studies. What the folks in 1987, and then another study in 2002, and then a follow-on study in 2005 by the same 2002 group found, 94% CBG and 0.001% THC. And that is so kind of earth shattering that that puts it in its own category. That's like a fourth chemotype. So now it's looking like we've got indica, sativa, ruderalis, and we don't have a name for this CBG dominant fourth type. Tell us more about CBG. It's very medicinal, correct? Yes, uh, just like THC and CBD, I know in the popular press, uh, and I've written a ton about THC and, and CBD, but uh, we tend to think of those as the only two molecules in the plant. And as we've said so many times in the past, we've got 113 cannabinoids, 200 terpenes, there's 20 different flavonoids, and they have a lot of the same medicinal properties. And because of the entourage effect, you know, they're jumping right in there with the endocannabinoid system, interacting with uh, CB1 and CB2 receptors. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things going on there. But CBG uh, is known for several things. And again, this is all of my recent projects have demanded that no medical claims are made whatsoever in the content I'm creating if we cannot cite multiple peer-reviewed research studies. So none of this is anecdotal. And well, my Aunt Jane said, you know, it helped her glaucoma. That's, that's great. But this is all backed up by research studies. So CBG, cannabigerol, a study in 2015 found that it was good for bladder dysfunction. A study in 2014 found uh, it was good for cancer in general uh, and, and different types of cancer. Another 2014 study found it was good for colon cancer specifically. In 2004, a study uh, found that uh, CBG and other cannabinoids was uh, very effective in reducing the intraocular pressure that leads to glaucoma and makes a lot of people blind. It's, it's a big deal. We make this joke of, oh, grandma smokes a joint for glaucoma, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But uh, some of these cannabinoids are extremely effective. There have been case studies of people who were on the verge of blindness and were able to uh, maintain their sight because of their use of cannabis. So it's very interesting. Huntington disease, a study as recently as 2015 showed the efficacy of CBG for that. Immune dysfunction overall, and we know there's AIDS and, and many other things associated with immune function, literally hundreds, and, you know, a healthy immune system can prevent thousands of diseases and ailments. 
And then there's inflammatory bowel disease. A study in 2013 showed that efficacy and multiple sclerosis. You know, millions of people have MS. It relegates them to a wheelchair. Yes, they get benefit from THC. Yes, from CBD. And as we're learning uh, from many other molecules in the plant, CBG is just one more benefit. And it really does, when you hear this list, gosh, I could have been talking about THC or CBD. We almost forget the exact cannabinoid. So the efficacies are very, very similar. And I, while we haven't proven the entourage effect, it is still a theory. All of this drives towards supporting the entourage effect and is a credible argument for full spectrum formulations and staying away from isolates and you know when we say broad spectrum okay what got filtered out broad spectrum is a fairly ambiguous label this whole thing is blowing my mind a little as you predicted i mean cbg if it's a fourth uh, cultivar essentially and suddenly it's found to at a 94 percent concentration I guess theoretically, growers could manipulate that percentage down to 50% or 40 or whatever is found to be efficacious, right? Well, this in the real world, you know, we, much of our dialogue here is theoretical, but in the real world, I have a compliance documentation client in the Midwest planning to grow hemp and obviously wanting to get the best yields possible. I shared this information with him. And he was mind blown, you know, it was keeping him up till 3 a.m. doing his own research because if he can produce that much CBG. Oh, and another thing we didn't talk about is these same studies, the 87 and the 02 and the 2005, showed that this fourth theoretical chemotype had what they called a companion molecule. So CBG was the main molecule. And the companion molecule was always found repeatedly to be CBD. So they travel together. <laughs> right. And the CBD content, I, if I remember correctly, it was like 10% or something, but it was significantly higher than it, than it normally is. But it was you know, vastly outnumbered by the CBG. The entourage effect, is that still considered a theory or has it been proven? It's, it's technically, it's a theory. And uh, Mara Gordon is one of my go-to people uh, for topics like this. And yeah, she uh, explains it well. But uh, we, we have not put millions of dollars into, you know, large human trials, placebo-controlled, double-blind trials involving hundreds of people. Those are, you know, two or three million dollars, as we've talked about in the past. And that's the money that's starting to flow through the industry as we, as we build a true industry that, you know, it takes, it takes money to do these. We spout off these research studies left and right here, but there are tens of thousands, if not millions of hours of, of human hard work that went in be, behind them and uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, especially when we look at the time span here. Uh, we're talking about research that was in 1987, and that's why it blows my mind that why haven't we been talking about this? 94% CBG, why in the heck haven't we been talking about it? Right. It's going to change people's lives to have access to that medicine in, in, in that form. It's just more evidence that we need to get our minds out of, I love THC, and I think there's a ton of value there. Again, it's got the same kind of medicinal efficacy as CBD and CBG and the other terpenes and cannabinoids, but 
if all we can do in this series is give listeners an understanding that this plant is a whole lot more than THC and, you know, let's get high and watch Scooby-Doo. Right. Well, and this kind of segment where we talk about the vocabulary and the different definitions, I think is very useful. You know, we, we covered chemotypes and cultivars and the genome and genotypes and phenotypes. And I think it's all going to help us because it's not just strains. And if anybody listening now, you know, you know, the strain has to do with bacteria and the fluids. <laughs> it's not what you should ask for when you go into the dispensary. Let's start talking about the cultivars and let's all get smarter about that. Well, Kurt, we covered a lot in a short time as we always do, but I think uh, there's a lot for our listeners here to unpack. I think we can wrap it up and look forward to uh, the next episode uh, in another week or so. Sounds good. Thanks for the opportunity, Tom. You've been listening to 2420, a special edition podcast series from Cannaboomers and Kurt Robbins. Want to learn more and help grow the cannabis movement? Spread the word and follow us on your favorite podcast platform or at cannaboomers.com.